Welcome to Our Seven Neighbors, Season 3, Birth of a Chicago Civil Rights Movement, Stories from the Archives, brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. I am Kim Schultz, producer of the podcast. This is the third season of our podcast. How about that? The first season, hosted by Rabbi Dr. Rachel Mikva, lifted up the voices of people experiencing and combating anti-Muslim bias and xenophobia. The second season featured stories from the Black spiritual diaspora, hosted by Dr. Camila Mukmin Rashad. And I am so excited to introduce you to the host of season three, Reverend Brian E. Smith. Brian is an ordained Baptist minister and the director of community relations and community partnerships at CTS. He is also the director of the Black Faith Leaders Collective at CTS and my partner on the Jackson Oral History Project. Welcome, Brian. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Glad to hear it. So, if you would, why don't you tell us more about the Jackson Oral History Project, on which we're basing the podcast this year? Happy to. Thanks to a generous grant from the Donnelly Foundation at CTS, we conducted multiple in-depth interviews for what we are calling the Jackson Oral History Project. We spoke with six civil rights activists from that time in Chicago, including Reverend Martin Deppie, Hermaine Hartman, Reverend Jeanette Wilson, Reverend David Wallace, Miss Betty Massoni, and the legend himself, Reverend Jesse Jackson. Each for about an hour as an oral archive to capture these stories and events and friendships. We hope the interviews lend new insight into the Chicago Civil Rights Movement. That oral archive project will be shared soon to the public. We have some exciting partnerships in store, so stay tuned. Now back to the podcast. Tell us more about what we're going to hear in these six upcoming episodes of Our Seven Neighbors, Brian, and I guess how it's connected to the Oral History Project. On each of these episodes, we will be in discussion with someone working from the community, faith, or social justice movement today. We paired each of these guests with an interview from the Archive Project to discuss, reflect, and glean lessons from the past and present. And it should be a lot of fun to hear folks respond to these archived interviews. Sounds great. Take it away. For this episode, we are honored to welcome our guest, Ms. Jacqueline Jackson, community organizer and wife of Reverend Jesse Jackson. We will feature a portion of the interview from the Oral History Project with Reverend Jackson in the sixth episode. But we are so excited to be in conversation with Mrs. Jackson concerning family, her experience as a woman, and her experience being married to the Reverend during those pivotal years for the first episode. Should be a good conversation. But first, let's go to the archives. We are going to listen to a cut from the interview with Mrs. Betty Massoni. Betty was married to Reverend Gary Massoni. Gary was a pastoral community organizer, activist, and personal assistant to Reverend Jackson during the origins of Breadbasket. He was the chief scheduler and confidant to Reverend Jackson during his presidential campaigns and an all-purpose staffer. Unfortunately, Gary passed away while helping us to develop this project. Betty was with him by his side all those years. She and Gary were also one of the first couples to meet Reverend and Mrs. Jackson when they all moved to Chicago in the 60s. Betty's full oral history is packed full of memories and stories. Let's listen to a bit of it now. So now you're at CTS and you and Gary bump into a couple. And I think you guys were the first people that Reverend and Mrs. Jackie Jackson 
met when they came to CTS. What yes. was that exchange like? Yeah, we had checked in, gone and got the keys to the apartment in Mary's Student Housing. It was McGifford House, it was Married Student Housing at that time. So we pulled up back in the side where the garbage cans live, and we unloaded our stuff. We had a Volkswagen Beetle, a Volkswagen Bug, and so we didn't have a lot of stuff. (laughs) And when we were finished, we were just finishing up, and Jesse and Jackie pulled in with Santita was a year old. Jackie was early pregnant with Jesse Jr., and it was a heat wave. It was awful and smoggy. You know, the mills used to put much more smog in the air than you have now. And they had had a difficult, difficult trip. They were pulling a little teeny U-Haul with a, I think it was a Corvair, a little car. We said to them, you want some help unloading? Because they were the very first people we'd met. And when Jesse tells this story, he always tells about that we met over the garbage cans. When Jackie tells it, she tells how she was very suspicious of any white people. (laughs) And so she thought we were going to steal their stuff. Neither one of us had any stuff that was worth stealing anyway. (laughs) But, you know, Santita was at a year old, was tired of being in a hot car, and we didn't have air conditioning then. And it had been a hard day for both of us. We had, Gary and I had stayed off the major highways because we were afraid of tolls because we just didn't have any money. So we didn't want to pay tolls, and we didn't have a map that told us which were toll roads. So it took us a long time in that heat to get to the seminary when we got to the Chicago outskirts. So here you are, two young couples, one couple with children. Did you have any idea that events would unfold the way they did? What was it like during those first moments, those first uh, few months as you guys grew together and matriculated at CTS? You know, not a clue of what was going to happen, except that we were concerned a little bit, not the way we got, but we, we were interested in civil rights. And we had a friend we had known in California who had some connection with the Chicago work that was going on then. This was before the main part of the Chicago movement and before Breadbasket and all of that. Let me back up and say about Grants Pass, where I grew up. Grants Pass didn't allow Black people there. And I hit this, my first real memory of overt racism, explicit, in-your-face racism, was I think I was in third grade. I think I was eight or nine years old. And a a black choir came to town, maybe Tuskegee, I'm not sure. But my brother, who was six years older, was a singer in a choir. So, of course, and I think that the high school choir, I think he was his first year. I think the choir from the high school was going to do one piece singing with this guest choir. And so we all went, you know, my family went to here and we were driving home down the main street of Grants Pass. 
And at that time, the Redwood Hotel was a nice place to stay in the center of town. And we were driving past it when my dad said to my mom, the choir was supposed to stay at the Redwood Hotel, but they've gone on to Medford. And I was piqued by this and wanted to know why. Why weren't they staying at the Redwood Hotel? And my dad explained that they had been forced because they were black. Negro was the term at the time to go to Medford to find a place to stay. And eight and nine years old tends to be concerned with fairness anyway. And I was just, I remember I was in the back seat of the car and I remember being just outraged. How could that be? They just were going to stay at the hotel and you stay at the hotel. I didn't understand. And my parents, they just said they weren't allowed to stay. They didn't really explain racism to me at all. I don't think they were, I know they weren't, really very aware. Jackie, from her side, her black background and my white background, we didn't know what to think of each other, really. And you know what's fascinating is how the two of you are still friends to this day. Oh, yes. Something happened. Something happened between you all while you were in that crucible uh, in Chicago in the 60s. It did. And it was the work, the cause. And then that winter, well, spring, March, was when the voting rights, winter and spring, was when the voting rights drive was going on in Selma. And when Bloody Sunday happened and people, including John Lewis and and Tosea were beaten. And when King issued a call and he specifically asked seminary students and ministers, religious people, he asked people of goodwill from the North to come, but specifically religious people. And Jesse heard this call and went about organizing a group from the seminary. When Jesse's in organizing mood, it is hard to resist. He was very, very persuasive. And I remember Gary was, it was midterm time. And the president, Howard Schumer, was president of of CTS at that time. And he was urging the students to stay and be students of the movement rather than participants. They were students right then. That didn't fly. (laughs) And when they got to CTS, Schumer was one of the first people they saw, of course. This group drove down, and I didn't, you know, I had my classes at the university, and I had my first serious, I mean, long-term job interview for a teaching job. And I looked at that and thought, you know, I didn't consider going it. And looking back, I have thought so many times, you know, why didn't I think that I should go too? A couple of single female students went, CTS students. There was a group of 10, I think, that went, drove down in this caravan. There was a couple that Gary and I were quite close to in student housing, and she and I consulted and because her husband went also. She was working for the university in, a, in an office. They let her have a radio to hear what was going on. And I was in classes and then going to this interview and stuff. And I didn't 
know what was happening. And the radio was the main news during the day. And so Sue and I would, she would keep me updated about what was happening. We were worried, frightened for the people we knew, Gary and the others, that I knew them all well, that went because, you know, we'd seen on the TV and the, night, the nightly news, we'd seen the beatings and the horses and the whipping and the, it was ugly. It was very ugly. But you ask about changes to Gary and to me. When he came back, we spent hours debriefing, talking about what he and Jim in particular, we did it with the other couple a lot. We recorded about seven. I've still got around here cassette tapes with about seven hours of conversation. We talked with the other people too, and with Jesse. And and Jesse had made connections with King at that point. I think he'd met him once before, I'm not sure. But um, with C.T. Vivian and all kinds of people that were working with SCLC, King's organization. And that gave Gary a direction. And it gave me a direction. So the, the next year, Chicago was heating up. Triple CO was the Confederated Organizations and the Chicago movement. Chicago big issues were education and housing. And uh, King picked Chicago as the place to come north. And in fact, I sewed curtains for the apartment he moved into because I could sew and I had a sewing machine. King decided Chicago was the place to come north. Women in general, the women I knew were incredibly supportive, but supportive. It's a secondary role. And, you know, this is the same, well, the latter part particularly, was the same time as women's movement and much aware of, and like I say, to me now, it's absolutely incredible that I didn't say, I'm going to Selma too, hang the midterms, whatever. But the women around Breadbasket, some of them were really, really important. There's a couple of them now that are still around. Hazel Thomas, whose husband Richard became very important in the early breadbasket days, and Betty Magnus. And they're still organizing and still dressing beautifully and doing what they can do. The women in Chicago that were spouses of anybody who was associated, there were women who were on their own too, not, not so prominent, but the women that were spouses like me We were all gathering information, picketing, leafleting, the supporting roles. You know, we heard, but I didn't meet women that were much more in the front, like Dorothy Cotton with SCLC. I didn't know them. And we had friends who, when... When King marched in Gage Park and had the brick thrown at him and got hurt, got banged pretty badly. And we had friends whose car was burned up then. 
And they were the same way. It was a David, a different David, was not involved, not like Gary working for Breadbasket and, and involved all the time, but very supportive and his wife equally, Nancy. It was such a different time. You know, it's, it's looking back, I think that I cared just as much as Gary, but didn't see that I had the same ability. And that was conditioning. I tell you, this is such an exciting project we are working on at Chicago Theological Seminary. What an honor to begin sharing these stories with you all. And now I want to introduce our episode guest, Mrs. Jackie Jackson. Mrs. Jackson was a student in international affairs at North Carolina A&T, a distinguished historically Black university, when she met Jesse Jackson. They eventually married and started a family just before they transitioned to Chicago, Illinois, where Reverend Jackson started matriculating at the Chicago Theological Seminary. Together, they would become a quintessential community organizing ministry couple for the ages. Welcome, Ms. Jackson. I'm so happy to see you. And so let's dive in. One of the things that you and I talk about so often is family. And you stress how you, Gary, Betty, Reverend, and David were a family. And this often gets lost in our interpretation of your history. So I want you to talk about that. Oh, my Lord, that's a long conversation. I guess we begin at the beginning. My husband, after he received a Rockefeller uh, Foundation scholarship, he was advised by Dr. Samuel Proctor, who was the president of our university at the time, to come to Chicago because he felt that Reverend's energy could be sustained in Chicago and not at Duke University. And it was the right choice for Reverend. And on our way, we dropped Reverend Calvin Morris, who became a permanent member of our family, to in Pennsylvania. And after we dropped him in Philadelphia, we went on to, went through Pennsylvania and the car uh, motor malfunctioned and we were on the side of the road with a child an overheated car and everything else wrong with the car. And this farmer of a sort, but he had another business. I don't know whether he owned a service station or what, but he stopped and picked us up, towed our car, and my husband told him we didn't, we were very low on funds and we were coming to Chicago. He took us in. I was scared to death of being taken in by a white person, but my husband, it didn't bother him at all. So we spent the night there, and he was a very, very kind gentleman. And I regret today that I don't know who this angel was. When he finished the car, he didn't even charge us, and he wished us um, success, and we were on our way. We arrived in Chicago in the evening to discuss the condition of the car. I think I would have to go back to Green 
Greensboro, North Carolina, because Reverend bought the car and he misunderstood or was lied to about the number of miles that was on the car, only to discover that it had a hundred and hundred and some thousand miles on the car as opposed to just uh, the 30,000 or 40 that he had convinced Reverend the car uh, had on mileage on the car. And that evening, because we were trying to prepare to leave, my husband, Jesse, at that time said, I'm going to take this car back and I'm telling him off now. I'm scared to death because we're in the South. And he did, and the man gave him another car. So, of course, I'm bewildered now and want to know, what in God's name did you say to this white man that he took the car back and gave us another car? But meanwhile, on our way to Chicago, we had no air condition in the car, so we went and bought a piece of a hunk of ice, and I was allowed to put the ice in the front seat in a pail in the front, so we could blow a little cool air. Then occasionally we would stop and dump the water because it had melted. It was a really tough ride to Chicago, but we were on our way to the promised land, and I looked forward to being in the North because I had always lived in the South and rarely traveled. Uh, my husband and his parents had a car. And during that time, my parents were always interested in buying land, which they did. And we didn't have a car, but we had friends with cars and we took the bus. We arrived in Chicago after enduring all of this hardship. And we pulled in the back of the university in the alley, and we had a little new hall. I don't know, seems to me it couldn't have been six feet. I think it had a, a, a rug in it, a few clothing, baby things, and just very limited things. And when we pulled up, a voice from, I don't know what floor it was. We lived on the third floor in the very back, wonderful apartment for the marriage students. And this head came out of the window and it was Gary Massoni and his wife was with him. And he said, do you guys need any help? And he scared me to death. And I told Reverend, uh, don't fool with them because they're going to take our stuff. And they're going to, you know how uh, white people are. I must admit, these are two individuals who perhaps are two of the people who remained in our lives at first sight until Gary's death, who are the warmest individuals. In fact, one of the sweetest things about his wife, Betty, uh, she would always come down to the apartment after Gary and my husband moved us in, and she would refer to my son, Jesse, because I had had him during the Selma Mod. 
she walked in the door and she bent over and with her hands at her knees, she bent over toward my son and she would say, hi, fella. Hi, fella. How are you doing, fella? And to this day, we call him fella. And they were just wonderful people. Gary, her husband, worked with us in Chicago with when Reverend founded the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization and was the first executive director. Gary was always with us. So what did you think about that interview with Betty? Because it's amazing. You're giving us a vivid picture of what she initially described in her interview. But what were your reactions to Betty's interview? Well, I had to watch them because, I'm, as I said, I'm from Fort Pierce, Florida. I was born there. And my experience was totally different from my husband because he's from South Carolina. And his parents were always engaged with Caucasians. They worked for them. They cleaned their houses. Their children were allowed to stay with them. Where my family basically came from tenant farmers and people who were basically self-employed and had uh, limited access to whites. They were the shopkeepers, the grocery store owners in the neighborhood, and many of them were not that pleasant. In fact, one of the most unpleasant things was we were always told that we would be fed to the alligators. And that was true in Fort Pierce, Florida. And we had heard many stories about Black people who were told that and came up missing. So my relationship with whites was very, very limited, whereas my husband was, his family was totally engaged, and many of them were biracial, African-Americans, and so his experience was totally different. However, after a short time, maybe two or three years, I felt very comfortable with Betty. She was very warm, and so was Gary, and very respectful. I learned with them not to see color, and that was quite a journey for me. What's fascinating to me is how young you all were. When I try to look at myself at that age, (laughs) I can't say I was that mature. I admire the fact that you all started this journey so early. What was it like being committed at that early age? Well, we were not exceptional people at that time. We were very, very responsible. When you look at the life of Dr. Martin Luther King and many of the adults during that period, Every generation we were taught had a responsibility to improve things and make things easier for the next generation. Today you find a different tone in America, which is very selfish. 
this is the I generation, the me generation, and the big I generation. We were from a generation of there are no little you's and big me's. We were all in this together to lift each other. We were also taught our philosophy. We were taught this in school, in church, everywhere that we gathered. Love ye one another. And most of all, we called it the golden rule. And oftentimes people would say, do you remember the golden rule? What is the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Somehow that's lost today. And you can see how the world misses that kind of level of caring for each other. So I'm simply saying that was a different day. I do feel that women, you know, for tough times, you've got to have tough women. And these are tough times. And as I was saying, we were not so individualistic during my day. It was, the family was the center of everything that we did and thought to do. Today, uh, the computer and the cell phone is our center. I'm not so sure this is going to end well. Well, I, I certainly echo your concerns as a family person myself. And I also identify with the experiences that you've shared with me. I've got to ask you about this one uh, as far as family. You had a young family. And you share this funny story with me about how you were caring for your family and you had to get milk for the babies. <laughs> Why are you so, going to reveal so, my secret? Oh, my God. You're going to tell them I'm a sinner. Yes, I fall short of the glory of God. Oh, listen, in the middle of all of this wealth, I had to, in Hyde Park, I'd never seen this level of abundance every I mean, white people lived so very well. We had this lovely apartment. Most of the things in the apartment was new. This was a, a wonderful experience. Uh, the promised land shrubbery was manicured. The homes were huge. And we had this Sterling Click, this building was, I mean, it was like the Waldorf Astoria to me. I'd never been around things so new and shiny. And we were so God-awfully poor. And Reverend was on the scholarship, and we had to make everything work. I have no hesitation about goodwill or junk stores. Now the junk has become antiques. <laughs> And I lived uh, at the junk stores for new clothes for the kids, a larger crib, something that I could paint and renew. And so that meant I had to budget everything. So downstairs at McGifford Hall, we had a cafeteria. Being one of the married families there, 
they had all of these amenities and all these things were basically free. So in the middle of the night, I would go downstairs and I would fill my baby bottles uh, uh, with milk out of this wonderful shiny machine. It's like free milk. So, and the door wasn't locked. Then I got greedy. So I had a larger container, and the larger the containers became, the more evidence there was against me taking the milk. And I would wait until the last minute to get the milk, and I would creep downstairs only to find that I had been discovered and the machine was locked. And I had the nerve to become angry. (laughs) (laughs) This is to show how other people can sin and you are not sinning. You just have a need. (laughs) It was all stealing, but I was very, very upset with the university for locking the machine on me. But uh, it was one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life at McGifford House. Most of the people there were wonderful, and we had the comfort of two wonderful families. There was David Wallace also and his wife, Mary. And we watched all of these young individuals' family increased. However, David was older. They were older than we were. I I think David was an upperclassman. So we spent most of our time with Gary and Betty because we went to the university at the same time. I appreciate those stories because they help all of us to process. And when we see you, we realize that you all were families and you were just like us. You were struggling. You were trying to make ends meet. You had to do the best that you could with what you had. I just appreciate hearing that. And I'm hoping that others will learn from that. You don't do everything all at once. I hope people don't hold that against me. (laughs) No, I don't think they will. Given the fact that you were a familial community, and that's the word we want to emphasize, community, you all also had the capacity to go out into the uh, community. And you and I have talked about the importance of being a community organizer. And that's how I would describe all of uh, you as activists. Uh, Gary, David, and Reverend Work. Once that's all you had, your neighbor, that's before a level of selfishness. As an African-American woman, and as we came into the realization that we were being oppressed, we felt it our responsibility to carry the entire family, not to spend time looking at ourselves. The Black feminist movement was about creating better opportunities for our families and all of us and for people. The white feminist movement became personal. Oppressed people must be concerned about their schools, your opportun- our opportunities to survive, not a gender's opportunity for self-improvement. It's about the whole not individuals. So, Mrs. Jackson, you were giving us a wonderful lecture on Black feminism, which some might refer to in this age as womanist 
theology or womanist ways? Well, it's complicated to place it in a category, and I think it requires a retreat because our existence in America and our work in America is complicated. You have to remember, today is a different day. So if you place us all in the field at one time, including our children, our concerns would be different and our sense of community would be different. When we see one oppressed, we see the conditions for all of us. You can't see George Floyd and him pleading for his mother without including me in hearing the plea. And we see this time and time again. That's why our roles in the struggle is so complicated to identify. For me to actively assist my husband, for me to actively put on my gym shoes and knock on doors to get petitions signed for candidates that I am attracted to, and then go in the kitchen at the event and fry the chicken, not to put on a navy blue suit and sit on the stage. That our work is far more engaging. When my husband ran for president, many people said, Mrs. Jackson, we see your husband all the time and we never see you. And I said, because I'm on the road too. And there's only one camera, and one focus. Can't be in two places at one time. In 84, when people asked me, the camera people, they said, Mrs. Jackson, look at Reverend Lovingly. I said, we don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) We work. And so the stage things, I'm not Nancy Reagan. And I'm so glad that you're lifting up this theme. Women and their importance to the movement. I don't think we get enough teaching around that area. And I'm just curious, I'd like you to just share some of the things that you and other women did in the movement that we might not be aware of. And I think you brought out a few earlier, but what are other things that we might not consider? The reason the movement was successful was because of women and their ability to join people. I think I'm convinced that today the reason we have so much disorder and chaos is because we are not even attempting to pull things together. But also, I'm not so sure that that's not intentional. For an example, when we say Blacks are incapable of doing this, they're incapable of doing that, there's a superior race who's capable of doing all things. What the truth is, is if what you are saying is true, why are you spending so much money to create chaos for us? It is happening because you know that is not true. You know that. I personally feel that God is in all things, and we are here at the right time as a race, and as a people, to help with civility. 
I think we're at, as a nation, at that fork in the road, a very critical time and space in the world today. And I am hoping that we can groom and teach more activists and people to be more caring for each other as a nation. And that's actually my closing question. Uh, You can add on to what you just said, but I, I wanted to know your hopes for emerging leaders that are following in your footsteps. I would hope that our friends, those who have befriended me, those who have befriended Gary Massoni, those who have befriended Kevin Gray, Emma Chappelle, Dr. Martin Luther King, all of us, I would hope that they would tell their friends about us and tell their friends about a group of wounded warriors who too resided in this country, who fought inside of this country to make it, this country, true to their word that we are that light on the hill that draws mankind to goodness. That's all I have to say about that. Thank you, Mrs. Jackson. I thank you, Reverend Bryant. This has been a wonderful opportunity. I'm so proud of what the university, CTS, has done for me and my husband. And I owe you a deep, and your new president, a deep bit of gratitude for changing my life and my, the life of my husband. Because the truth of his ministry really began here at this institution. Before we were just playing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, that was a powerhouse start to season three. What an episode. Special thanks to Mrs. Jackson for starting us off and sharing such intimate and powerful stories from where and how it all began. What a fascinating conversation. Tune in next time for episode two, featuring a clip from the archives from an interview with Reverend David Wallace, one of the primary organizers of the Chicago Breadbasket Movement. Then Brian gets into conversation with Reverend Dr. Otis Moss, pastor of the Trinity United Church of Christ. You won't want to miss it. It's another outstanding conversation. Trust me. All of our episodes can be found at OurSevenNeighbors.com. Our Seven Neighbors is brought to you by the Chicago Theological Seminary. Please join us next time for another look back and forward with Our Seven Neighbors, birth of a Chicago civil rights movement, stories from the archives. Thanks for listening.